Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts in the world, and honestly, it's not because of me. It is because of my truly incredible guests. I feel so fortunate to spend time with people who show up here, and they are at the top of their game. They are passionate about helping you achieve your goals in both your personal and professional life, and they show up big. They don't hold anything back. They're here to share the secrets of peak performance with us, and I know you'll find their insights both inspiring and actionable. So sit back, relax, and get ready to take your life and business to the next level. Today I am talking, we are talking about mastering sales and leadership with Anthony Anarino. Now, Anthony is a highly respected author, speaker, and sales leader who has spent over three decades helping individuals and organizations achieve their sales goals. And he's the author of several best-selling books, including The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, which is on my desk as we speak, and Elite Sales Strategies, A Guide to Being One-Up, Creating Value, and Becoming Truly Consultive. Now, Anthony's passion for sales is infectious, and you'll hear that today and read his book, and you'll get it there too. And his expertise in the field is second to none, He has a talent for breaking down complex sales concepts into simple, here's that word again, again, actionable steps that anybody can implement to achieve success. So, Anthony, welcome to the show, and thank you for sending me your book. It's much appreciated. And by the way, I was talking with you in the virtual green room just now. Your bookmark is hilarious. It's a (laughs) cutout of your head. And it is the darndest thing. I've got you. Actually, I had you on my, my computer table. Now you are in a corner of my um, my monitor. So you're staring right at me. Just <laughs> you know. it's, not, it's not a good form to argue with your podcast host right out of the gate. But I would say part of the reason that your show is so successful is that voice of yours. You were, oh. you were born <laughs> to you. do this. and. As soon as I heard your voice, I'm like, this is exactly a radio voice. It's perfect. Oh, thank you. And I'll tell everybody who's listening, no, I don't do 900 calls, so don't ask. It happens. So. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, but thank you. And that I'm chuckling. I think we're going to have a really good time here today. So thank you so much. Listen, tell me a bit about you, you know, share with us who you are and why you do what you do, because I think that's important. I'm, I'm happy to tell uh, the story. Probably the best way to tell this story is um, I grew up in uh, a, a broken family. My dad left when I was seven. My mom was raising four kids and uh, we were um, poor. And when you're poor and you realize that you need to do something, uh, you find something to do that can make you some money. So when I was 12 years old, I got a paper route, and I had three apartment complexes that I was responsible for. And uh, I knocked on every single door, and I asked every single person in all three of those apartment complexes to buy the the newspaper when there was a newspaper that was actually delivered by a, a paper boy, right? And uh, I had so many people say yes that on Sundays, it would take me uh, about five to six hours to to take care of 300 uh, Sunday newspapers. Uh, A couple years later, I ended up in a place where I was cold calling for a charity, and I was the only person to get two deals. It was a Pikeathon. We were trying to get community leaders to do that. And then some years after that, I joined the family's business, which was temporary staffing. But that was not what was in my heart. What was in my heart was rock and roll. Uh, I grew my hair all the way down to my waist. I started a rock and roll band. Uh, We did very, very well in Columbus, Ohio. We could fill all of the big venues by ourselves or with with one other group. And I had a girlfriend at the time, and she said, you're really good at this. You should go to Los Angeles 
and front a hair metal band. And not giving it any more thought than that, I drove to Los Angeles and I found a job with another staffing company called Olsten uh, Services. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're really, really comfortable where you're working. You really like the people that you're working with. Everything is going great. And then you get a new manager. Uh-huh. So the worst possible thing, right? It is. They're going to come in and they're going to start making changes, right? Right out of the gate, they have to get a win. And uh, my new leader looked at me and realized, like, this guy's got hair all the way down to his waist. And uh, I was doing a really good job as an operational person. And uh, one day he came up to my desk and he said, uh, who's a whose accounts are these? And he handed me a list. And it turns out that they were all my accounts. I had won these accounts because what I was told in a family business is when you're not interviewing people and placing them, call people and see if they need any help. So that's what I did. I did what I was told to do in a family business, and I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. So I would go out and meet people. I would talk to them about their problems, and then I would uh, come back and send them a contract, and I ended up with more sales than the three salespeople that were in that particular branch. And uh, that that didn't work out very well for me because I was very happy doing what I was doing. I'm there to play rock and roll. But my manager came back later on and he said, listen, I want you to cut your hair and I want you to become a full-time field salesperson in the Los Angeles area. And what I heard, that that's what he said, but that's not what I heard. What I heard was, I want you to become an axe murderer and go on a killing spree. That, that's what I thought about sales. So I said, I don't want to do this, and I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm here not playing rock and roll. I'm in a hair metal band, so I need to have hair. And he said, listen, you, you can keep it like shoulder length. You can wear it in a ponytail. And you, but, but if you don't have a suit on on Monday when you come in here, I'm going to fire you. I didn't think oh that was very God. fair. So I, comp- yeah, yeah. So I, I complained a little bit, and we argued for a little bit, and he eventually said, if you don't do this, I'm going to send you back to Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I, I said, okay. So I went and talked to some of my friends, and uh, we happened to be at a bar called Mom's at that time. It's in Brentwood, California. And... Uh, while I was there, somebody grabbed me and gave me a really, really passionate kiss. And I didn't know the man that was kissing me, but he thought that I was Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who was his, one of his best friends, because I looked like him. I mean, we were about the same size, same hair, everything was the same. And that was what caused me to go like, okay, so maybe I go black crow's length, you know, just past the shoulders and try to keep this job because I've got a band out here and I have to do something. And uh, I went into sales and I was terrible for probably three months. And uh, eventually I started to get it. And uh, I won the largest deal on the second, well, the west half of the United States uh, for a 4,000 staffing office company. So they were $4 billion, I think, at the time. And I won a $50 million deal annually. Uh, and that that was like the very, very largest deal on the Western half of the United States. And then everybody thought that I was the golden child or something. And they wanted me to keep doing what I was doing. But what happened to me, uh, I'd love to tell you I got a big commission check. But what happened is uh, walking up to my Brentwood apartment, I suffered a grand mal seizure. And, oh, uh, and I woke up being restrained in what I thought was a van. I didn't know what was happening to me because one of the things when you have a grand mal seizure, you're the only one that doesn't know you had a grand mal seizure. Like everybody else who saw it knows what happened, but you don't know what happened and you're not, your brain's not working well. And I uh, argued with these, what I called my captors at that time, because I thought they were doing like taking me. And I, I, they followed me into my apartment and cornered me and, uh, they were so aggressive trying to get me to the hospital that it made me feel really nervous. And one of my neighbors came by and said, if you're not going to go with them, go with me. I'll take you to UCLA, which is right around the corner. So instead of getting into an ambulance where I could get help, 
I went in a like a 1982 Chevy Chevette to UCLA Medical Center where I was diagnosed with uh, cancer on the right lobe of my, my brain. And it turns out it wasn't that. It was something called an arterial venous malformation. And that was a, um, a, a very difficult thing to deal with. So not for me, but for doctors. So I, I came back to Columbus, Ohio. I had two surgeries in the University of Cincinnati where, one, they took all the arteries and veins and they they filled it full of a glue, like an epoxy, so that there would be no bleeding. And then the next day, I had an 11-hour surgery where they removed the uh, arterial venous malformation, and then they removed the piece of my bruised brain that would never recover. Uh, I was a kid that tried to drop out of high school. I started working when I was very young. I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. But my compensation, what happened to me, is that I realized that there was more for me. So I went to college. I graduated summa cum laude. I got a dean's scholarship to Capital University. And then right after that, I did uh, Harvard Business School for their OPM, which is a, a version of an, an MBA for grown-ups. So I did all that in a compensation for losing a piece of my brain. I felt like I had to do something with whatever I had left. I went back into the family business and I grew it to uh, $50 million with just four salespeople. And that's when people started to pay attention to what I was doing and asking me, can you help us to understand how you are doing this with so few people? And uh, that's when I started writing a blog every day. So I've done that at thesalesblog.com for now 13 and a half years. I've published every single day. And uh, that, that's when people started asking, what else can you do to help us? And that's where uh, that's what got me here. I, you know, Anthony, I'm very rarely speechless. I'm just about there right now. And this is an amazing story. It's a frightening story, but it's also very inspiring. At no point did you give up. At no point did you say, well, crap, my life is over. You just kept on going. I was offered that, though. When I went to see my neurologist after the surgeries for just the checkup, uh, there was a piece of paper that he pushed across the, the table to me, and he said, you need to fill this out. And I looked at it, and it was it was my disability. I, when you're in California, you pay for disability. It comes out of your check, whether you want it to or not. It's a law out there. There were two boxes. One said permanently disabled, and the other one said temporarily disabled. And he, he said, you have to pick one of those. And I looked at him, and I said, am I disabled? And he said, you are if you think you are. I said, I don't think I right am. answer. That was the right and answer. And I checked the other box, and I'm like, I'm not disabled. Like, I'm I'm fine. I'm up. I mean, other than having like a little uh, drip that I heard in my ear for about, I don't know, six weeks. It, it wasn't really a drip, but it, it's so disconcerting when you hear it in your ear all the time. You think it's like a, a drip, but it's just the, the pulse from where they, they – tied these arteries and veins together. Uh, it finally went away, but it was very disconcerting. So I chose to not be disabled, and I decided I can work with whatever brain I have left. And so far, it's been okay. Uh, yeah, I would think so. And I know what you mean about hearing your own pulse. Have you ever been in a hurricane? No. <laughs> don't <laughs> but I'm in southwest Louisiana and where I live I'm literally equidistant between hurricanes Rita and Katrina and this isn't oh. about those particular hurricanes no they're magnificent actually once you've done your your prep and you've done everything you can to stay safe and might as well sit back and watch it because hurricanes are truly magnificent they're scary they'll scare the bejeebers out of you but you know I'm scared just watching on, on TV yeah, a lot of people are. But there was one hurricane, and now I can't remember which one it was, but we landed right smack in the eye of the – there's so many of them. The eye of the hurricane means that there was all kinds of racket outside, trees bending over, literally bending over 
falling over. It was a mess. And then all of a sudden, complete silence out of nowhere. Turned out we were in the eye of the storm. So the people in the house with me as a couple family members, we wander outside very cautiously to the front porch, and there's a complete cessation of sound. No birds, no nothing. It was so quiet. We could literally hear the, the blood rushing in our veins. Wow. Yeah. So what you just said reminded me of that, and I hadn't thought it in a while. It didn't last long. Excuse me. And all of a sudden, it started back up, and we're like, oh, back in the house now. <laughs> Let's hope nothing blows over again. And then a tornado hit, and my house got twisted, but that's another story. But oh. I know what you're talking about, because when you hear your own blood, you're like, oh, there's no way to describe it. No. I mean, it's disconcerting. I mean, and it went on for too long. I mean, it was probably six weeks or something. And then eventually it stopped, thankfully. See, I'm thinking Chinese water torture. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> That's what I think it felt like. I can imagine. You know, when your story is fascinating. When when we had our, our pre-interview, you were talking about how to sell for non-salespeople. I suspect, Anthony, I'm going to have to get you to come back another time because there's so many things you can share with this audience, and I have so many questions, and normally I wait to do this about three-quarters of the way through, and I do it on the on the radio, so you can't tell me no, but would you come back another time? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, great. So listen, let's let's stick with what we're talking about now because you started out with sales at a very early age partly because of need, I suspect, but partly that was just really who you were without knowing it. And then, you know, life took a, right. a, yeah, a big U-turn. You never stopped. You never quit. And I read your blog, the sales blog. I'm fascinated with it. I mean, it's, but tell us a bit more about your life as you started recovering. You were never disabled. And I'm so proud to hear you say that. So proud. But let's let's pick up your life story because I think people really need to understand what you can do to help yourself, what you can do to help other people. And honestly, pick up your big girl panties, not you know, not for you, but keep going. Don't sit down and whine. I mean, I think it's just depending on what your your childhood was like, you know, for me, it was um I had a difficult childhood, so there was, you know, Dad leaves. Mom's taking care of four kids. I'm in the street. I'm I'm a street kid. That's that's how I grew up. A lot of violence. I mean, just, just in the neighborhood because where we were, where we lived. And uh, what what happens to some of us in these situations is that when we're small and weak, which I was, then you have to get bigger faster. So you start to get into some scuffles with people because not because you want to, but because you get attacked and you start to figure out that you have to take care of yourself. And that, that was the adaptation for me is that I had to get bigger and stronger, uh, not physically, um, by mindset. My mindset was that I can deal with these people. There's a lot of ways to deal with them outside of violence. So what I figured out was if I could entertain them, and, and I could make people laugh, uh, I could stop the, the bullies from being bullies because I'm entertaining enough. And so I tried to do everything I could to avoid those things. But you still run into those. Uh, after um, I did the paper route, I went to a, a, a place called Villa Milano. It's a giant um, banquet center. And I washed dishes there for probably two to three years. And uh, it was a, a good experience for me. I got fed every day, uh, prime rib, lasagna. Uh, probably on a normal day, I would eat maybe like eight chocolate mousse or something like that because I was 13 or 14. And uh, that, that was a really good place for me. I got paid a lot of money um, for my – it's like $3.35. But I worked like 50 to 60 hours because they didn't care about labor laws. And that's where I realized that. Uh, the discipline of being able to work is is something that gives you a superpower. So there's two things that you could do in a dishwasher. You can either take the front part where it's wet and you're going to leave soaked, 
or you take the back part where your hands are going to be in trouble because the the dishes are so hot when they come out. And there was always somebody who would complain about either one of those two things. And I never complained about them. I just did my work. And that stuck with me. So just the discipline of being able to work and just keep working going on was super helpful for me. So when I got into college and I went into law school, for me, it was just natural. Uh, I could read when I was um, just over three years old. I could read. And uh, that's why that was school. I hated school. Uh, oh, you and me, but I, I was so bored. But I loved, I loved, I was bored to death. And I kept leaving school and, and going to the banquet center to work. And people would have to come from the school and take me out of there and bring me back uh, to school because they knew where I was going. But I'm like, you're not feeding me. You're not giving me any money. Uh, you're not very helpful. And uh, uh, eventually I made it through high school, but barely. Um, I barely made it through there. But when I got to college and I was allowed to pick my own path and read what I wanted to read and do the work that I wanted to do, it changed for me. I, I wanted to learn. It just the environment that I was in in high school just didn't work for me. It sounds like it didn't work for you either. No. I Like you, I was reading at three. And I tell this story a lot. I told it yesterday with my friend Bengay third, but my kindergarten teacher is a very large German woman. She's about the only teacher I can recall. And my mom was five foot nothing much and a half. She swore she was five foot four. She wasn't. She was a pocket <laughs> penis. Trust me. She was a tiny, but she could jump like a flea. But I remember she had gone into the, this class for some reason, and the teacher jumped up and said, Denise says she can read. Why can she read? Why is she lying to me? And my mom stood up to her full height, whatever it was. And she wasn't afraid of anybody. And I think I inherited that from her. But she looked at this woman. She said she can read. And the woman wanted to argue with her. And finally, you know, the teacher said, well, how can she read? We don't, I don't understand. How can she read? And my mom said, because we didn't tell her she couldn't. And that made a big impact on me. But something you said about reading, I think, and this is my personal preference for everything. I don't watch TV. I rarely watch movies. I will read the back of a cereal box, and I don't eat cereal. So I think reading is a huge benefit to anybody who wants to move, get somewhere, move their brain, move their body. Read. Read everything you can read. For for $25 in six hours of your time, you can get the expertise of somebody who spent their whole life studying something. I mean, it's the best deal on earth. You're going to spend just about 25, 30 bucks tops, and it takes about six hours to read a book. And, and once you do that, like you picked up a whole bunch of things that was somebody else's experience, and you've got a shortcut to getting better results. I mean, that, that's why we write books is so people can read this and then they're able to understand something uh, in a much better way because they did they took the time to read the book or listen to it on audio. Absolutely. Way. Yep, I do both. Did your Me family? Too. Did you come from a family of readers? When I was a kid, my mom would take us to the library. Yeah, because there really oh. wasn't much to do other than you know sit outside and look at fire ants because we had plenty of those. But she would load us all up into the car. I was one of a whole mess of kids, and I'm an introvert. None of them were, and they wouldn't stop talking. But reading, we would stop talking. And she would load us up, and we, with our little arms, would take as many books as they would allow us. And we would literally, when it was too hot to be outside, sit in the living room, all of us with our nose in a book, a stack in front of us, read it, pass it on, read it, pass it on. In in my house, I have an office, and I have um, just over a thousand books in that particular room in my house. And then in the basement, I have another maybe two thousand books. Uh, because when I was a kid and I went to the library, I had to bring the books back, and I, I never know. wanted to give the books back. I was and so you, unhappy taking the books back. <laughs> They would fine you, and my mom would say, I can't afford the fine. Put those books in the car. No, we didn't want to. Especially when you found a book that you loved, and and then you you don't want to give that book back ever. And 
I, I knew like when I make enough money, I'm going to buy these books and I'm going to keep them for myself. And I'm, I'm 55 years old right now. And I still feel like that, that something was taken from me when I was a kid because I wasn't allowed to keep those books. Uh, uh yep. very, very important to me. Books are really, really an integral part of my being. We had books. My parents had books everywhere. My grandparents gifted them a bunch of books. They were farmers, and they couldn't always read, so they would just bring them to my mom's house. I was reading Guy de Maupassant as a very young child. I was reading 1984, which, by the way, scared the bejeebers out of me, and is one of the reasons I'm so intensely private. But I read everything, and there was one... I think these are my grandmother's books. Do you remember the the Reader's Digest, the condensed books, hard the, books? That's what I was going to tell you. That's what we had yeah. at my grandmother's house. I love that's what those. we had. Well, I I was reading one, and you know, books make such an impact. Stories make such an impact. And I'm so glad we're talking about this. But as a child, I discovered Merry Christmas, Mister Baxter, which was one of these books. And it was Edward Streeter, who I believe wrote Father of the Bride, which I haven't read and I don't watch the movies. But I love that book so much that when I grew up and left house, you know, left home and got my own home, I might have relocated it. I did relocate it. It's mine. I've had it for years. (laughs) And every Thanksgiving, it's in the bookcases in my bedroom. And for those of you who don't have bookcases in your bedroom, what's wrong with you? Books go everywhere. I've got them in the garage. I've got them everywhere. But I pulled you know that those out every sort of Thanksgiving. stand-up ones that, that go, they're like a metal thing, and they've got like these little slats that you can put books on them. So I have um, all my favorite books in the bedroom on one of those things so that uh, I've got all the books that I love the most uh, right next to me. No, you're going to have to send me a link. I don't. I can't even picture it. I have two I'll send you of those ladder books. Yeah, I've got two ladder books cases. And then, you know, when I'm in my bed and I'm looking directly at the wall in front of me, books, nothing but books. What are you reading now? Right now, I am reading your book, obviously, but I'm also reading the, this is another guest that I had, Long-Term Leader by Scott Agnew. And I'll read anything Napoleon Hill, anything by Napoleon Hill. Yeah. Or Zig Ziglar. That's uh, always worth it reading absolutely so what i don't even know how i've got so many questions you know what i think i'm going to stop asking you questions and let you run with it because your story is seriously fascinating so pick up if you don't mind i mean you went to college you got out of high school i got out by the skin of my teeth i hated it you disciplined yourself to go to college and then law school what I guess my question is, what were the next steps? Why did you, when did you embrace sales? I embraced it after my brain surgery. That's when I really realized I had something that I could do that I was good at. And I, I didn't know that I had something like that. I never wanted to be in business. I, I wanted to play rock and roll. That's what I've always wanted to do right. since I was a kid. And so that didn't work out because grunge came and hair metal was gone. I mean, once, once the grunge band started taking over, uh, when I came back into the family business, it was doing $3 million when I came back from California. So I I recovered from the brain surgery over say three months. And I decided I'm going to, I can't watch TV. There's nothing for me to do here. I learned how to play guitar during those three months. I had a lot of friends come over and teach me how to play and I, I went back into the business. It was $3 million. And because I had the leader that I had, my new manager at the, the staffing company in Los Angeles, I grew it to $7.8 million my first year. So that was the first thing that I did. And I won the limited. I won another division of the limited called Structure. I won Victoria's Secret Catalog. All these are in Columbus, Ohio. I won the state of Ohio. And... Uh, I really, really liked what I was doing, and I didn't know that I was going to like it as much as I liked it, but I did. I liked every part of it, making the cold calls, having all the meetings, and to me, it feels like service. It feels like these people have problems. They need to get better results. They need somebody to come and help them figure out how to do that, 
and they really like it when somebody comes and helps them get the results that they want and you start to get these relationships and I'm a relationship guy so for me like having a relationship with someone and being able to create value for them and helping them get some results that they were unable to get before I showed up that to me is just pure joy and I, I enjoyed it I still enjoy it but that that's what happened to me is that once I started to do it and I realized that I had a, an ability to do it um, I, I stayed in that lane well up until now <laughs> I'm still in that lane you're still working with the family business I have one hand on the the steering wheel so it's my mom and her business partners business I don't own any part of that. I own a part of two other staffing companies, but I have one hand on it because she's 76 and they're they're getting to the point where, you know, it's time to figure out what they want to do with this business. Yeah, so what's the succession plan? Sure. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so you know what I'm hearing from you is that you have had a lot of people no matter how rough your your childhood was, and listen, mine was no picnic. It really wasn't. Um, but I survived it, and I'm glad I did. It wasn't that horrible, but it wasn't fun. You know, just let me put it that way. But it sounds to me like no matter how rocky, rough your early childhood was, that you had an awful lot of people around you that came into your life who really had your best interests in their yeah. heart and they um, helped you as best as they could I, I'm writing uh, my sixth book right now it's called the negativity fast and and it is something that I think everybody should do is try to take all of the negative sources in their life and remove them as much as they can a lot of it is what you will have already done you turn the TV off you, you don't watch news it's all bad news that's no. all they do is try to scare you and it's I'm not propaganda. willing to it's propaganda, and I'm not willing to be poisoned. I'm not willing to have my mind poisoned, so I don't watch any news. My wife is always unhappy with me. She's like, did you see this story today? And I'm like, nope. Did you see this one? Nope, didn't see that either. I don't need to know. Like, she'll tell me, I know, but I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to ingest any of that. And I did this for myself at one point in time. After law school, I was really political, and, and I'm a libertarian, so... I get to argue with everybody. I can argue with the left and the right because I want all the rights that I'm entitled to under the Constitution. And uh, I was really, really angry. And I had a, a mentor named Mike Distelhorse, and uh, he, he said, you're really angry about politics. And at the time, Bill Clinton had done a – he signed a bill that gave us a retroactive um, increase to our, our taxes. So I paid my taxes. And then I got a bill bill for more taxes. And I didn't think they could do that, but they did. And I was angry about it. And he said, listen, the only thing that you can do is outrun the bastards. If you want to take care of your family, you have to go do that. And you're going to have a bigger impact on them than the government ever will. And uh, it took me maybe a year before I acted on that. And then at that time, I decided... I'm getting rid of politics altogether because there's nothing I can do about the world. I can't do anything about what's going on. I can't do anything. And uh, I do have to take care of my family and give them the life that I think they should have. And uh, I decided to do a negativity fast. So I t got rid of, listen, I, I got every magazine. And because I'm a libertarian, I would read Christopher Hitchens, you know, in Vanity Fair or in The Nation, left-leaning. And I would read William F. Lee Buckley's stuff from National Review. I'd read everything. And I got rid of all of those. And it took me about 90 days before I felt a, a whole lot better. I mean, I just got rid of everything. Even negative, negative people I removed from my life. Like, I can't be around them. They're too negative. And I, I just wanted to have a clean start to say that I, I don't have to have these Fears, basically, that's what most of all these things are. It's mostly fear. And I didn't want the fear. <clears throat> I wanted to do what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and so I, I got rid of this. So in that book, I have a chapter on gratitude. And I think I'm grateful for all the bad things that happened to me equally as I am the good things. 
I mean, my dad not being there means I was liberated when I was 12 years old. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I drove an El Camino to Naples, Florida from Columbus, Ohio. I was a, a difficult child uh, for my mom. I mean, for sure that's true. I apologized every time I talked to her. I talked to her <laughs> a lot too, and I always say sorry. I know, but that that was I was liberated. I had a like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn kind of growing up, like constantly into something. And there's always an adventure. I wouldn't trade any of those experiences at all. And you know when you hear people say like cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me and you're like i mean certainly you you got married and certainly you had children like those aren't better than that and what they're trying to communicate is the same thing that i had which is after the brain surgery your perspective changes like you recognize that the only things that really matter are people and the people that you care about and you get this very very clear view that that other people are missing until something happens and they they have to be confronted with their their time here on earth i mean your life is four thousand weeks on average that's what it is it's four thousand uh when i tell people that i know exactly how many weeks i think i have left they think that's morbid but i'm like i'm counting down because I want to make the best of my 1,378 weeks, three days, and 13 hours. So and I, see, that makes perfect sense to me. People, we know this at gut level. We're dying from the moment we're born. You mean, right. just the way it you're, is. We're changing, we're, we're growing, but we're also retreating, and our cells are changing. We're getting older. We're going to die. That's... You might as well just deal with your life or enjoy the best life you can while you're still here and you're still aware. I don't understand. Look, I'm like you. Negative people, I can smell them coming, and I'm out of there. I don't let them anywhere around me. It, it, it helps you not be negative yourself. They can infect you with their negativity. And, and it, when I see, like, sales groups where they have one really negative person that person makes it their job to infect everybody else with their negativity. And then after that, you have a bad culture, and then you have to do a, a whole do-over to try to fix it. It's very difficult. And if you stay, keep them out of your life, you're, you're a lot safer. And uh, to, to your point, though, uh, when you're born, uh, you have a death sentence. I mean, it's already it's baked in, so why pretend that you don't? And I've studied with two Zen masters who would both tell you, uh, the more that you are aware that you're already dead and you just have time, uh, the easier it is for you to, to do whatever you want to do. And, again, it's more about the, the liberation. Like, I can do anything I want. This is my time, and uh, I'm going to make the most of it. Why wouldn't you? Well, and, and that's just it. And I think uh, just by you know observation, I'm a high committed introvert, truly. Yeah, I've, this, I've been this way all of my life, and it's not that I don't dislike people. I like people just fine, but mostly I can only be around them if I don't know them well. Or the conversation is not really fascinating. I'm good for 59 and three-quarter minutes. After that, I'm gone. I've got my car keys. I've, timed it. I've got my car keys. I'm out of there. <laughs> I'm not going to stick around. Yeah, so I think for Bring something for to the party. When you're an introvert, people take energy from you. You know, oh, yeah. and I'm an extrovert, so people give me energy, and uh, and it's it's different. So when they're they're sapping you because of your 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 dis disposition, and for whatever reason you have that disposition, it does it, it takes something away from you. I have a good friend who's a speaker, like I am, and on stage I'm an introvert, and off the stage I'm an extrovert. And when he goes on the stage. Uh, he is an extrovert, but he's really an introvert, and people just drain him really fast. And for me, it's like I'm getting energy from these people. It's just, uh, it's just how you're wired, or whatever it happened is. to you that got you there. It's just wiring. Oh, I was born that way. My mother said, <laughs> bless her heart, she said that my very first word was not mama or daddy or dog or cat. It was no, and she said I meant it. So, <laughs> tells you everything you need to know right there. That's funny. 
Well, she didn't think so. <laughs> but anyway, so let's. When your when is your book going to come out? Your new book, um, the negativity. I think it's going to be October or November. That'll be the the time that that one comes out. We're still in the the, the writing process, so we're we're editing, and it takes a the the process of doing a book. It, it you can write the book, you can get it done, you can get it edited, and then you're just in purgatory for I don't know six months. Like there's nothing about the book. It's all just in the process. And mostly for the last couple of years, because of paper shortages, like you have a tough time getting a, a book on a press uh, because it's hard to get the paper. So I all didn't of this know stuff that. has to be time correct. Yeah, so it's uh, it's hard to get the paper. It's hard to get the time on press, and and so you have to try to get these things timed right. And I'm I'm late on mine because I had a whole bunch of work, and but the book is in good shape right now. Good. Well, I just wrote a note to have you come back or invite you to come back, if you will, when that book is published. I love it. Okay, great. It'll be a good conversation. There's about 10 or or so concepts that are worth people knowing that uh, that, that will absolutely make it easier for you to be. You're you're always going to have negativity. Uh, It's built into us. It's called negativity bias. And we're biased that way because of how humans evolved over time. But there are things that you can do that will make it easier for you to be more positive more of the time and less negative more of the time. And so that's the strategies that are in the book. And uh, I think it's going to be really helpful for people. Post-pandemic, you know, all the stuff that we have going on in the world, people are grouchy. Oh, yeah. They're they're grouchier than they've ever been. And I'm so glad that you brought up gratitude. You, I don't know that I was all that grateful for much of anything when I was younger. I was cocky. I was the smart. My mother used to call me, bless her heart. I'm thinking a lot about my mom you know, right now, but she passed away about four years ago, and this is about the time of year. But, you know, she used to tell people that I was an educated smart ass. Like, thanks, Mom. But it turned out I really was. But I don't tolerate fools very well, and I think that's really what she meant. And when I say I probably wasn't all that grateful about much of anything, I was just too smart-assy, excuse the language, but I really was. And, you know, like you do with your mom, I would tell my mom, "Why? I'm so glad you didn't hit me with the car. I really am. Because I know there were days when she just wanted to run over me, and I wouldn't have blamed her. Yeah, but mine was as, uh, was patient with me for some reason, but I was uh, I was a difficult kid too, no, no, a very difficult kid. Well, I was but, difficult in that I didn't communicate with anybody. I just wanted them to all go away. Nobody really understood me in my house. None. They would just say, "Why are you so quiet? We don't want to turn the TV." My my siblings, everybody's all in you know, ex- extroverts. Me, I'm just like, everybody, shut up. Sit down, no talking. That didn't work well. It's a, the, that Those teenage years are tough. Yeah, they're not human. Have you noticed this? Teenagers are yeah. sociopaths. They're not human yet. I had three of them all at one time, so oh, uh, I got the full you. dose. <clears throat> Twin daughters. I don't know about women, but... That 13 to 18, my goodness, <laughs> it's not an easy time. It's not easy for us either, from what I can no, recall. No, it, it, it didn't look like it was. It was. It looked tough for them. It's a. It's it's different for boys, I think. But they made it through, and we made it through. And then they came back to me when they were about 19, and uh, they turned into good people. <laughs> and they realized that I wasn't a monster, even though. When I was a, when they were young, they thought I was for sure. I've heard this story. It's like you know your kids, and I did it with my parents, my mom. All of a sudden, you wake up one day and go, uh, "Oh, I'm going to be writing sorry letters for the rest of my life." I mean, you can see it coming. But you mentioned gratitude, and I really wasn't consciously grateful for anything. I was just too busy. Me either. Not. Isn't that strange? How do we not know? And then years ago, this podcast is 15 years old now, 
And I had a guest probably in the very early beginning. I can't remember what we were talking about. I don't remember who he was, but I remember his message because he had had, like you, a life-altering event with his health. And he managed to survive and essentially cure himself. Yes, he had to have the surgeries. Yes, he had to have medical intervention. But he swore that he got healthy and healthier as every day went on by practicing what he called extreme gratitude. And I said, what? What do you mean by that? And he explained it. This is years ago. I mean, it really stuck with me. So I trained myself. I had to train myself to be grateful. How silly does that sound? But I'm constantly in the morning, in the evenings, and before I go to sleep, I will express out loud because, and I've said this before, when you're thinking, you know, there's like a major highway. You know, there's things you can't think one thought, but you can speak one thought. So when I have something that I'm very grateful for or I'm turning something over to my subconscious for review, which I do before I go to sleep, and at 3.18 I wake up, there's the answer. But I have to speak it out loud. So whoever's listening, God, spirits, my guides, whoever's listening, say, yep, Denise, we got you. Thank you. There's a book by um, Martin Seligman. And Martin Seligman, is um, he was at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe. And he's the one that created positive psychology and the idea of flourishing. And before he started to to talk about positive psychology and the things that we could do. It was always psychology was about what's wrong with you. And it wasn't about, you know, how do you flourish? It was more about you're broken somehow. And uh, he changed that in his book. It's called uh, the hope circuit. It's his biography. It's a, a wonderful book to read. Uh, if you're a reader, uh, it's a I'm good book. Writing it down. It's, I'm going to it's, go get it's it. It's a story book. So it's just story after story. And, uh, a lot of the science and some of the things that they were doing at that time. But in that book, there's a story about gratitude. And he, he has a, a story where he tells something about himself and somebody that was really important to him. But if I remember this correctly, and I'm, I'm trying to study this right now because I have to put this in the book. And if I remember the, the science on this, if you are depressed and you don't feel good, and you have something going on, one thing that they did was they would say, Denise, here's what I want you to do. Write a letter to the person that had a, a massive impact on your life. And write the, that what, what you really feel and what you really believe about them, write it down. Now, that's not the exercise. The exercise is you go to that person and you read it out loud. You literally read the, the letter to them, and both people end up crying at the end of it because it's so emotional, and that person who was depressed is no longer depressed, and they don't know how long it lasts that the depression is gone, and it, it's something about us as humans and the nature of our relationships and being loved and, and being you know seen and all of those things. That, that does something about this. So it's, it's really interesting. That's the story about gratitude that I have to put in this book that I haven't put in yet. But you, if you just think about the gratitude for somebody that did something for you that changed your life in some way, just reading that letter out loud changes you from being depressed to not being depressed. And why would that be? And it's something about our need for other people and and their need for us. Uh, I just think that's a a fascinating study and certainly something you can act on. I'm definitely going to order that book. Listen, even as a highly committed introvert, I've got my my path mapped out. When I'm older, I'm going to be the lady sitting in a rocker with a knitted shawl over her shoulders, a cat at her feet, maybe a dog. A shotgun probably that's, you know, not working, but it's going to be there. Maybe a bottle of rubbing alcohol. I don't know. And I'm going to be yelling, get off. Yeah, that's my plan. (laughs) We'll see how it works out. But even as an introvert, I need people. And that's why I have this podcast, because I get to connect with people like you. 
people like my, my co-host, Ben Gay III, who is also a stellar salesperson. I get to meet people from all over the world, and you have no idea how grateful I am for that. And I don't have to leave home. And I was going to say, you're like a really weird introvert, that you like talking to people <laughs> in front of a I whole do. giant audience at the same time. And it's the strangest thing when I do go out and about, because I have to sometimes. But, you know, I'll put on my baseball cap and my largest, darkest Ray-Bans and my resting bitch face, and off I go. doesn't matter. People <laughs> always talk to me and talk to me. It's the strangest thing. But you know what I've noticed? I will come back from these little outings energized because I've met people I wouldn't normally meet. I've had fun conversations. I live in the middle of Cajun countries. Just some of them are in Cajun French. I'm learning something. And I come home and I feel seen, if you will. But I didn't have to take any of them home with me and I don't have to keep them. But I got out and about. I miss uh, New Orleans. I haven't been there in a long time. Uh, I went there... Uh, many, many years ago with a business partner of mine. And I said, uh, I'm going to go get uh, some crawfish at Ifei. And he said, what's that? Oh. <laughs> and I said, it, it, it's mud bugs. And, and I said, it, it's delicious. And he said, am I going to like it? Oh, yeah. And I said, no, yeah. you're going you're gonna to love it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and, and literally, I'm, I'm saying very literally, that's all he ate while we were in New Orleans. Crawfish. Yeah, absolutely. Crawfish at every every day, every meal for him. I I told you we were going to like it. Have you ever tried boudin? No. I'll send you a link to boudin. We eat a lot of it down here. Basically, it's dirty rice, but it's in a casing. And, you know, it's just delicious. It really is. But, you know, it's got rice and it's got liver, which I don't eat as a rule, but in Budan I will. Really good stuff. One thing about living where I live in the deep south, the food is just, oh my God, good. You you know, you'll go into a restaurant, eat a fried catfish pull boy, and want to go outside and kick your tires. It's that good. Yeah. Yeah, I love the food down there. I love Cajun anything. <laughs> You'd like it down here. Listen, we... We've got about 10 more minutes, and I know we wanted to talk about sales, and I really, when you come back, I hate to tell you this, you're going to be coming back more than once. You're going to come back for the book, obviously, but just so the audience knows what we were going to talk about was, and I'm going to give you the bullet points here, how to sell for non-salespeople, and some of the things that you told me were no one wants to grow up to be a salesperson. I've got a story about that. You were born to be a salesperson, and you can prove it why people don't love to sell, what we really do when we sell, why buyers are skeptical, and how to give people certainty. Okay, because your story is fascinating. Let's give them just a couple minutes then. So if you are a non-salesperson that needs to sell, I would tell you that you should pretend like the person sitting across from you is somebody that you're responsible for trying to help. And if you know Uh, something that would help them, instead of thinking that you're selling, think about this idea of my job is to help them get a result that I know know how to do because I've done it for a lot of other people. And just pretend like this is a friend of mine and I have to help this friend. So I have to give them some information that they don't know. I need to help them make a good decision. And if you just look at it through this lens of this is just a person that needs some help and I have the capacity to help them, it changes how you feel about it. So I I always try to start conversations with sales groups by saying selling isn't something that you do to someone. It's something that you do for someone and with someone. And that that is how I think people should think about what they're doing. It's not like you're trying to do something to them. You're trying to do something for them and with them. And when you look at it through that lens, like I'm here to help that person, I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to make sure I understand them. I'm going to make sure that I understand their problem. And then I'm going to tell them what they might do to get something, a better result. So that that's how you should think about it if you're a non-salesperson. Or if you are a salesperson, that's still a great way to present and to show up is to be, I'm the person here to help make sure this person gets this thing that they want. And if you do that, like Zig Ziglar would say, 
you can have anything you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And uh, he was right then and he's right now. Yeah, he is. And what you said was just so eloquent. So do me a favor and say it again because I want people to write this down. Uh, The part where selling is not something that you're doing to someone. It's something that you're doing with them and for them. So basically, you know, put aside the nagging voice in your head where your your manager is saying, you need to make this many sales today. Don't listen to that. Look at the people you're talking to and figuring out how you can help them. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. That's your job. I mean, when when you're a salesperson, your job is to help them get a result. And if you just look at it through that lens, it changes the way you think about sales. Perfect. You know, I, some years ago, somebody, and this was a long time ago, I was in a feed store, I think. I had just gone from a livestock auction, and I accidentally bought two little baby pigs. Don't, I talk with my hands. Don't ask me how that happened. And I was in there asking somebody, does anybody want two baby pigs? Because I didn't have a farm. I had pigs. I didn't have a farm. And I was talking to you know, a couple people, and they're just chatting up. I'm not unfriendly. I'm not shy. I just don't need to be around people all the time. And this tiny little farmer, he was just standing there, and I wasn't paying any attention. Pretty soon he tapped me on the elbow, and he said, honey, can I talk to you for a second? I said, Sure. He said, I want you to know you are the best natural salesperson I've ever come across. I wanted to slug him. I was so offended. And I was young enough and stupid enough and arrogant enough to not know that he was basically giving me some information about myself that I didn't know. And Isn't listen, I'm sure he's long gone. No. And I'm when sure he is long gone. When somebody sees something about you that you can't see, isn't that yep. isn't that great when you get you have that happen? You're like, it was, wow, I didn't yeah. know that about me. I well, I didn't know it then, and I didn't want to know it. But <laughs> let me tell you, for many years now, I think about that man every single day, and I'm sure he was quite elderly at the time. I'm sure he is long gone. And I offer up a little thank you and a little I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I was polite. Do you know? But, do you know how many you know, people you've goodness. actually interviewed? Hundreds. Hundreds, probably 700 people at this point. Wow. Some introvert you are. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's my story. (laughs) You can't mess with it. I I am an introvert. Yeah, something like that. I've been doing this for 15 years. That's amazing. No wonder you've built up such a big audience. I mean, you've been so consistent. Well, well, you pointed that out. Yep, you pointed that out in the very beginning. Listen, we are running out of time. I have, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation, and I'm so inspired by it. And you do have to come back. You've already said it on the radio. Absolutely. So I'm holding you to it. <laughs> and the next time we will talk about your book, the only sales guide you'll ever need. Um, we'll talk about that, and we'll, you know. I'll get you to share the pointers that people really probably came here to hear. But now that they know you, I'm hoping they'll go find your book. So before I let you go, Anthony, where, I mean, it's been such a pleasure, but where can people find you? Before we wrap things up, can you let our audience know where they can find more of your work or connect with you okay. online? The the first place to go is thesalesblog.com, uh, and you have to put the Z in front of it, T-H-E. S-A-L-A-S, blog.com. I've got about 5,000 posts there, so if you're looking for any help with any part of sales or leadership, you'll find it there. Uh, You can also connect with me on uh, Twitter, and it's just my last name, Anna Reno, and you'll see that here, I think. And then um, LinkedIn is a really good place, too. So any of those places, you can connect with me. And where can they find the book? I know it's on Amazon. Amazon's the best place to get it. Well, Anthony, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope you will enjoy today's episode and took notes and gained valuable knowledge from our discussion with one of the best in the sales world, Anthony Annarino. And don't forget to um, 
I just lost my train of thought. Don't forget, I'm scribbling down notes. Don't forget to subscribe, our, to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on your favorite platform. And be sure to join us again next time for another exciting episode. Until then, keep learning, growing, and exploring. Anthony, thank you. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 